I'm thrilled to be back with you. This visit with you was planned. Uh, the last time I was with you here just a few weeks ago, that was unplanned, and I apologize if you're disappointed to see me back so soon. Uh, but this was actually in the hopper a few months ago, so uh, I'm thrilled to be here. And I'm also really excited that your pastor, your elders, your leadership are taking you through a study on prayer. I could say in the last 20 years at Christ Community, we've probably done uh, five or six, maybe seven different seasons where we've done series on prayer, and they're always ones that our folks respond to really well. It seems to be something that we have a lot of interest in as believers and maybe a lot of misunderstandings about as believers. And so to be able to address those and to give encouragement and to give instruction is really just such a gift to us as teachers to be able to share in that with you because you probably know, I'm sure uh, your pastor mentions it, that as we study, the word of God is so rich we also continue to learn and be instructed, and we try often to share with you, not from a, a perspective of, I know so much more than you do, but wow, God's doing something in me, and I want you to share in that with me. And so I hope that that's how we meet one another today. Um, the topic today is unanswered prayer, and Philip gave me kind of the whole the whole series and said, pick one. And so I waited, I looked at it for a few weeks, and then I picked this one, and then immediately regretted that I picked this one um, because I got to thinking about Scripture and going, well, I don't know, how does Scripture really address this? Unanswered prayer. And the, the only thing my brain kept going to was an old Garth Brooks song called Unanswered Prayer. And I, I don't want to torture you with that at all this morning, and that's not the direction that I wanted to take anyway. And then, as I started to study and think, and seek the Lord, I got excited because, there's, oh, there's some cool stuff in here. And then I was, again, not excited because this cool stuff, some of it's really hard. And sometimes that can be difficult to deliver in a way that is encouraging and, and uh, edifying or building up to us as believers. So I want you to go with me this morning. We have a lot of scripture that we're going to go through to get to a central theme that I want us to think about before we leave here this morning, and hopefully we will be able to go there together. All right, can I pray for us before uh, we break open the word? Father, thank you for the gift of worship. Thank you for the gift of this space in which we can gather, lift our voices, lift our hearts to you. Lord, I was so encouraged and challenged by that the song, Be Thou My Vision, that you, that you might be the only thing before my face in all that I see and do in life, that you would occupy my vision in each moment. Lord, I know sometimes I'm easily distracted. Sometimes I'm willfully distracted. And Lord, I pray that you will continue to, to mold and make my heart and my will into the heart that you intend. And that more and more each day, each moment as I live and breathe and move in this world, Lord, I will see you before me in all that I do. Lord, bless this time together. May these words be your words. 
And may the word speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I love the topic of prayer. I've, I've seen a lot of uh, great things happen through prayer in my life, both personally and then uh, through the church. And, and I don't remember all of the different topics that, that Philip has outlined for this uh, series. But I think of, uh, and maybe you have the same experience, there are some people in my life who I long to hear them pray. Because it just seems like when they open their mouths, something about them and their posture and the way they speak just seems to me like they have a, a conduit maybe that I've not experienced. And an example of that was, um, and I can think of several, especially growing up, uh, kind of heroes of the faith in the churches that I grew up in. But I remember one time I was at a banquet for uh, what was uh, then, I don't know if they're still called the Crisis Pregnancy Center. I feel like maybe they've changed their name, but I can't remember. We were at a, a large banquet down like at the Hilton or something, and they had called for the end of the, the banquet for people to come and just pray, just go by a microphone and pray. And it was a very long line, and I will be true enough to admit that three-quarters of the way through, I was ready to be done. It was just like it was going on and on and on and on, and and it was very carnal and not very Christian of me. I was tired. I was ready to leave. It had been a long night. And then this gentleman stepped up to the microphone and he began to speak. And it seemed as if the room shifted. Almost as if something opened and suddenly there was a presence in the place that wasn't there before. And I don't want to diminish the prayers of any people because at the end of the day, as we're lifting our voices and our prayers to God, if it's authentic from our heart, then it's meaningful. It's communion with the Lord. But I then began to strive in my own life to be someone who, when I spoke publicly in prayer, that I tried to be very intentional and authentic in that prayer and not try to be flowery. And I think that's what was kind of distracting me about what was going on before. It was, it, there, there came a period where it seemed like each successive person was trying to, to outdo the one before in churchiness and prairiness. And it, was, it didn't feel authentic. And then this man just got up and he just talked to God before us. And I've seen times where We've stood at the bedside of someone who was declared to be done in the hospital. They're not going to make it. And we've stood at their bedside and prayed simple prayers of petition before God. And I can think of five people off the top of my head right now who walk today, living and breathing. Because we prayed, that's God's business, but we prayed, and somehow God answered. And by the same token, I can count a lot of times where we've prayed, and to our human eyes, it would appear that God did not answer. And that's where we're going to live and sit today. And I hope that there can be some encouragement in you, because I think probably we've all experienced those moments, and then we wonder, why? Why is God not hearing this prayer? And there are some reasons for that. Um, 
<laughs> Sometimes it might just be that the prayer is, is really not honest. Uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, my favorite movie actor is an old school guy, Jimmy Stewart. Anybody? I know you guys are so young, but uh, I know so I see some of those old folks and I, some of my old souls back there, right? Jimmy Stewart, movie called Shenandoah. It's a good old cowboy movie. He's a, he's a rancher. He owns a huge farm. He has sons and daughters and the Civil War is happening and he has been doing everything he can to keep his grown sons out of the war, but the war comes to his doorstep. And there's a scene where they sit down at the table for this beautiful meal that's laid out with everything that they've grown and harvested and, and animals that they have there on the farm. It's just beautiful. And he sits down and he just starts to eat. And one of the daughters says, Daddy, you got to say grace. And he's a little grumpy about it because he's been working all day and he's hungry, but he stands up and kind of rubs his forehead and says, Well, Lord, we, we thank you for this food that's here on this table that we're about to eat. I mean, we, we, we plowed the ground, gathered the seeds, and we planted those seeds, and then we cared for it, made sure the weeds didn't overtake it. We gave it water when it was dry and tried to make sure it didn't get drowned. And then when the harvest came, we went out and we picked it and we pulled it in and we cleaned it and we've cooked it here today, so... Well, I'm not really sure what you did, but we thank you, Lord. And so sometimes our prayers are not answered because they're simply not really prayers. They're about ourselves. But I think there are at least three ways in Scripture that tells us, maybe a fourth, which I'm going to touch on a little bit later, and there probably are more. I'm, I'm not claiming to be exhaustive in this. This isn't a, this isn't a, a commentary on prayer that, you could go through and use for a, a scholarly example. But three that I think are important to us. And what I want to do is, is give you those ideas, then bring us to some scripture to kind of underscore those, and then move us to one central theme, and that'll take us to the end. All right, so here we go. First place we're going to be is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And our first point is that sin is spiritually divisive. Now that could mean between one another, sin where we, we sin against a brother or sister. Jesus talks about this. If you know that there's sin between you and a brother, go and make it right. If you know that another brother has something against you, go and make it right. But sin is spiritually divisive. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 14, what we find is the culmination of the story of David and Bathsheba and her husband, and Nathan the prophet, the friend of David. And I'm not going to go through the whole story, but the, the gist of it is David has committed a terrible sin against God and against his neighbor. He's taken this other man's wife, and uh, I will challenge you in this moment to think about your lens, especially if you're like me and you've been around the church for a long time. Challenge your lens about this relationship. This is so much different than an affair. The dynamics here are so much different than that. And we know this is true because Nathan comes to the king. He knows all about what David has done. And he tells him this story about a man who 
uh, has a, a companion and they're going to have a, a meal together, but he doesn't want to sacrifice his own lamb. So he goes and he steals his neighbor's lamb and he kills it so that the two of them can consume it. And then he continues on with the story and paints this picture of this terrible crime. And he's telling this to David as if it's a true story. And when he's done, David goes, that's awful. That guy, that guy should be strung up. He should absolutely be brought to justice. And Nathan grabs him and says, it's you, David. You're the one who did this. And immediately David says, I've sinned against God. And by this time, Bathsheba is pregnant with his child. And Nathan says to David, he says, God has not gotten to the place that he's going to write you off. He's going to put your sins away. But your child will not live. Now, don't misunderstand me. Friends, I want to be very careful with you. That does not mean that, that when someone loses a child, it's because there's sin in their life. Please do not hear that from me. That would, that would break my heart. Nathan goes on to describe why David suffers this penalty. And then I'm going to give some insight into why I think God allowed this to happen, that the child did not live. And it's in verse 14 and 15 that Nathan says this. He says, nevertheless, because by this deed, listen to these words, you have utterly scorned the Lord. Utterly, that means to the depth of your being, these actions that you took. And specifically, Nathan actually points to the killing of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband is the thing that he points to specifically right prior to this in the text. You have utterly scorned the Lord to the depth of your being. That word scorned in the Greek means you've despised God. That's pretty heavy. The one who would be described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart found himself so enraptured with sin and his own designs, that he utterly despised God. So nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. I really didn't want to talk about this passage because this is hard. But friends, our sin, to whatever degree it may be, can cause us to be spiritually separated from God. Hey friend, have a seat. Can cause us to be spiritually separated from God and bear terrible consequences. And we see in this place where, where Nathan says, listen, God has put your sin away He's hurt, and it's literally in this moment, because until this moment, David has not repented. He's been very proud and very secretive about his sin. But in this moment, when it all comes to truth, David throws himself on the ground and says, I've sinned against God, and Nathan says, God has put your sin away. He's heard you. But he's not going to remove the earthly consequences. 
from what you've done. And so it goes on to say that the child becomes sick. David then prays for days, weeps before God, throws himself before God on behalf of that child. But the child still dies. And to David's perspective, perhaps, certainly to many of those looking around, it would appear as an unanswered prayer. And it, and it is, right? I mean, if that's the desire of David's heart, and that's what he wishes would happen, to some degree, it's not that it's unanswered, but it's not answered in the way in which we might desire. Now, a little underscore there of maybe why did God allow this? Because if you go on, and I encourage you to do this, go and, go and read the rest of the story. Read, read what, everything that comes before and then read the rest of the story. What goes on to happen is Nathan tells David, the sword, because of what you've done, the sword, war and death and heartache in your own family will never, ever leave your house until the day that you die. And that was a curse that came upon everyone in David's family. And I think God in his providence took that beautiful, innocent little baby and said, I'm just going to go ahead and bring you home and, and leave you out of that. Because it would be born into a life that had so much struggle and pain after that because of David's sin. David prays, he weeps, he fasts, his servants are worried about him, and then the day comes that the, that the baby dies. Let's go to verse 18. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. So that gives us an idea of how distraught and how intense David was in praying over this circumstance. That they're afraid that if they, they go to him, he may even do harm to himself now that the baby has passed. In verse 19, but when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And then he went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. But he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And we hear David's great confession that, that he will one day rejoin that child in the presence of God. He will go to him, but the child will not return. And so he gets up and he begins to not only care for himself and clean himself up, but in the aftermath of that, that terrible circumstance, he actually turns his heart back and worships God. But to get to this place where David is worshiping, we travel this incredibly difficult, incredibly painful path of willful, wanton sin, even to the utmost, the ultimate sin of killing 
another human being and hiding that. And all of this creates an environment where David is not hearing at all the voice of God. They're separated. He's put himself in a position away from God because he's utterly despised God. And it takes Nathan to come along and reveal the truth to him for David to be brought back to repentance. And how is he brought back to hearing from God? He repents. He confesses. I've sinned against the Lord. Isaiah 59.2 says it this way. One and two, actually. Uh, This passage is just talking about general evil in the world. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God. Notice this isn't talking about those who don't believe. This is talking about those who believe. Now, is it a separation where God just kind of kicks you to the curb and he's un, un, unaware of your life? No, it's, it's a separation of God allowing you to have whatever it is that you've wanted, to do what it is that you intended to do. And then the consequences, they really fall at your own feet. And so, friends, this is a hard passage. This is a hard principle, but it is in the word, which is our sin separates us to a degree from the work of God in our lives. He will allow us to do what we will and wish to do that is not in line with his will. But when we do that, we must must be aware that the consequences can be devastating in our lives. And And it need not be as extreme as losing this child, right? It can be losing familial relationships. It can be losing a marriage. It can be losing a job. It can be a sickness within our own bodies because of choices that we've made. It can be our own death and demise because of choices that we've made. But friends, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. He calls us as disciples to pursue righteousness. He doesn't call us, he knows we're not going to be perfection in every moment, but we should be working towards that perfection. Amen? If we're not living differently as as someone who's been ransomed by Christ in the world that's infested with sin, are we really any different? And when we are that believer, that follower, that disciple, we can short-circuit the immediate work of God in our lives, the, the work he wants to do today, by interfering and interrupting and separating it by sin that we choose. The remedy, of course, is to repent. Because we talked about this last time I was here. His mercies are new every single morning. Praise God for that. Second, uh, self-serving is spiritually distracting. Let's go to Psalm chapter 37, verses 3 and 4. Very likely, uh, if you've been around for very much time at all in church environments, you've heard this. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, by the same token, if you've been around church teaching for very long, you've probably heard this as well. And if not, I'm excited to give you this lens to look through. 
And when we understand the way this language is structured, don't be confused, as we might be with other passages that we'll mention here in a moment, that this is saying that if you're faithful and if you're uh, righteous, um, do good things, that then anything you want, God's going to give it to you. It depends on how you look at that. God is not a cosmic gumball machine. Right? You can't you know, just put in your righteousness quarter and turn the dial and get whatever you want back out. This text actually in its tense is telling us that if we will trust God, if we will indeed do good, if we will indeed dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness, meaning be in the kingdom of God and, and be under the cover of his faithfulness, delight ourselves in the things of God, he will put within us the desires of our heart. Our desires will become the desires that he that he infuses us with. C.S. Lewis said it kind of like this, you can't, travel, you can't travel the path of righteousness and not meet the one who is righteous. If you do good things, if you trust in God, if you delight in the things of the Lord, if you are awed by his faithfulness, by its very design, you begin to become one who has the desires of God within you. But if you're self-serving, you get distracted from the things of God. You no longer pursue the things that, that will ingratiate you to the presence of God. Matthew says it like this in chapter 6, verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, he had, Jesus addresses, he's obviously addressing Jewish people because he says the Gentiles struggle with this but understand that in our context today, as believers, Jesus said that we would be grafted in, we would be adopted into his family. And so we understand here that Gentiles means unbelievers. And Jesus is saying here, don't be like the world. Don't be distracted by what tomorrow will bring. Be invested in what is today. Seek the Father in every moment. Seek the kingdom of God in every moment. And God will be faithful to those who follow him. Now, sometimes we get a little confused because we go, well, um, what should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? Uh, especially in America, Western culture, we're, we're so used to having so much that we sometimes get confused about what, how much we actually need. He's not promising that we'll be fat, dumb, and happy here like I am. He's saying, I will take care of you. I will take care of you. And I don't know. Sometimes I struggle with that. Do I really trust God to that degree? I want to. I believe I do. But I got a pretty satisfied life, friends. I think about some of my friends who've gone to foreign mission fields. 
and uh, friends who have traveled to places where there's so much less than what we have here in America, and yet you'll see believers in those places who we would look at and say, that's awful, and they are filled with the joy of the Lord because guess what God is doing? He's taking care of them. Just not in the way that our Western minds have come to be used to. But if we're self-serving, seeking ourselves and worrying about whatever that, that physical thing is or that uh, materialistic thing is that we might want that next item or we wish we had this or we're jealous about that, that distracts us from the mission of God. And then when we pray for those things, of course God's not going to answer those prayers. Of course he's not going to give us what we don't need if our hearts are only pursuing our own self-interest. And listen, I've had plenty of occasions in my own life where, and I've really tried to, to work this out of myself, and I think I'm better at it now. I would have ideas, whether it was related to church, ministry, uh, things that we could do as a ministry or things that we could acquire as a ministry that might make this easier. And I would begin to, I have this metaphor that I used. I know I've used it with Josh. We've talked about it before. You just try doorknobs. Like, what does God want to do? Uh, how does he want us to move? What's the next? You say, look, it's like everything, every decision's a doorknob. Just give it a try and pray to God. Keep the doors closed. You don't want me to open and open the ones you want me to go through. And I'll go through that one. And on the other side, there'll be a bunch more doors and I'll try another one. And sometimes I just get frustrated and I kick the doors open and then go, why isn't God blessing this? It's because I was self-serving and I was self-distracted. And again, God is willing to go, yeah, fine. Have fun with that. Let me know when you want to come back. I'm here. So don't be distracted by your, your own desires, but instead seek to be filled with the desires that God wants to infuse you with. You do that by doing good, being faithful, trusting God. Seek him. Seek the kingdom of God. Third, submission is spiritually refining. Right, so sin is spiritually divisive. Why sometimes does God not answer prayers? Because we're wrapped up in sin and we're bearing the consequences of that. Uh, two, self-serving is spiritually distracting. Sometimes he doesn't answer prayers because what we're praying for is not what he wants for us. It's just, it's just not his intent. And three, submission is spiritually refining. We find this in the story of Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. This is... This whole, this whole couple of passages amuses me right before this. Go back and read it later. Because Paul is basically dealing with some people who have said, you're not qualified to tell us anything, and so Paul is listing his credentials. And they're impressive. And at the beginning of this chapter, uh, chapter 12, he says, I shouldn't go on boasting, but I'm going to anyway. Not that it's going to do any good. And then he goes on to list some more things. And he's really not being necessarily boastful. He's trying to demonstrate to them ultimately that he says, listen, I have all these credentials and guess what? I still need Jesus. None of this was good enough. All the things that I did. 
And so then verse 7, he says, So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, that's he's talking about himself, the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he's had, where he was, he says, there was one who was taken up into heaven, whether by the Spirit or not by the Spirit, I don't know. I'm so great. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about it, that that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And this tells us that sometimes God does not answer our prayers because whatever we're going through, whatever we're enduring, whatever we're facing, is something that he intends to use to refine our character, to build our discipleship. He says, I prayed three times. Every time God said, no. So it's not really unanswered prayer, but none of these are unanswered prayers. I don't think there really is such a thing as an unanswered prayer. It is either God is refining us, we are praying for something that God does not want us to have, or we're enduring consequences for decisions that we've made. That's three possibilities. There's probably more. All three of these share that same common issue. The prayers are not offered in accord or agreement with God's intent or his will. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about everything, anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This passage here is talking specifically about prayer. Take everything you have and give it to God, and when you do, this is what God promises to you. He will guard your hearts and give you understanding and peace in Christ. God's will is his divine plan for our lives, a supernatural tapestry of interwoven purpose that sometimes is difficult to see because we we live among the threads and he sees the whole canvas. And so sometimes when we're praying for something, we're not seeing the answer we perceive because it's not part of God's will. It is his will sometimes that we have consequences. It is his will that we don't receive that which he does not intend. It is his will that sometimes we be refined and, and, and purified and chastised. So then how do we know God's will? Listen, anytime we seek the kingdom of God, We are doing God's will. We can learn that through the Bible. Uh, Godly counsel of people. When I say godly counsel, I mean through other people who are also invested in the Bible, the word of God. Our own history with God's work in our lives. We can see where God has worked before and we understand him a little bit more as we go. 
constant prayerful communion with God, these all contribute to the ever-increasing discipleship formation of us as believers to better know the will of God for ourselves and the world around us. I love what uh, Dallas Willard says about the kingdom of God. Uh, when we're talking about the will of God, where's, where is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is where what God wants done is done. Anywhere that the work of God is being done is the kingdom of God. And if you get in on that, you are in the will of God because his work is being done in his kingdom. So I'm sure in this series, uh, Philip will, if he hasn't already touched on how should we pray, I'm not going to go through the entire, entire model of prayer because the disciples asked this prayer, asked this question. They said, how should we pray? And, and Jesus gave them an answer. There's a fourth possibility that is in scripture other than those four. I don't have a slide for this one. But it might be also sometimes that we don't perceive our prayers are answered because we're not persistent. If the prayers that we're praying don't fall into one of those other categories where they're just, they're just kind of in error, if you will, they're outside the will of God, if we're praying and we know it's right, we know it's, we're, we're in the scope of the kingdom, the Bible says that we should be persistent in our prayer. Uh, the book of Judges says, the fervent effectual prayers of a righteous person availeth much. We have the, the parable in Luke 18 uh, of the judge. Jesus is telling the story about a judge who's, who's the authority over all of these people. And this widow comes to him time and time again with a request. And it's a decent request. He just doesn't want to grant it right now. And then finally he goes, you know what? Just for nothing else, because you've been persistent, I'm going to give you what you want. And it's just, it's just an act of goodness on the sake of the judge. And it's a, it's, a, it's a parable, right? So it's a picture of the kingdom of God. How should we pray? Look at the model prayer. Pray without ceasing. Uh, the Bible says to pray secretly on our face before God in our own little closet. Pray with full faith. And then finally, finally, with this foundational acknowledgement about all of these kinds of prayer, everything that we've talked about this morning, this final foundational idea. It's found in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 28. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And this is where I hope that the word of God gives you great encouragement. Because even if you find yourself in the place where your consequences have messed up your prayer life with God, even if you find yourself becoming aware that, oh man, I've just been praying for my own thing and I haven't really been thinking about what God wants in my life. 
where you find yourself in the place where God has steadfastly said to you, I'm not going to change that because you need that. Any one of those could potentially feel hopeless. But Romans says, don't lose hope. Because the reality is, none of us know perfectly what we ought to be praying for. But God's Spirit does. The Spirit within you, the Spirit that every believer receives, He does. And as you and I clumsily pray, the Spirit goes before the Father and lays it all out in perfect language that is far too complex and deep for us to understand. But he does it on our behalf for our good. We're going to close today with a liturgy. Have you guys done this before? Or is this new? No one's going to tell me. All right, I get it. I feel it. All right. Probably my last time here. Let's, uh, let's stand together and, uh, and deliver this with one voice. And then I'll give us a final blessing. And let me just say again, thank you for letting me be here. Uh, it always, I don't know. I've been preaching for about 30 years and it still always feels clumsy. But God is gracious. And I pray that he's spoken to us this morning. All right, so here we go. Our lives are so small, O oh Lord. Our vision so limited. Our courage so frail our hours so fleeting. Therefore, give us grace and guidance for the journey ahead. We are gathered here because we believe that we are called together in a work. We cannot yet know the fullness of. Still, we trust the voice of the one who has called us. And so we offer to you, O God, these things. Our dreams, our plans, our vision, Shape them as you will, our moments and our gifts. May they be invested toward bright, eternal ends. Richly bless the work before us, Father. Shepherd us well, lest we grow enamored of our own accomplishment or entrenched in old habit. Instead, let us listen for your voice, our hearts ever open to the quiet beckonings of your spirit in this endeavor. Let us in true humility and poverty of spirit remain ever ready to move at the impulse of your love in paths of your design. You alone, O God, by your gracious and life-giving spirit have power to knit our imperfect hearts, our weaknesses, our strengths, our stories, and our gifts one to another. Unite your people and multiply our meager offerings, O Lord, that all might resound to your glory. May our acts of service and creation, frail and wanting as they are, be met and multiplied by the mysterious workings of your Spirit, who weaves all things together. 
toward a redemption more good and glorious than we yet have eyes to see or courage to hope for. May our love and our labors now echo your love and your labors, O Lord. Let all that we do here in these our brief lives, in this our brief moment to love, in this the work you have ordained for this community, flower in winsome and beautiful foretaste of greater glories yet to come. O Spirit of God, now shape our hearts. O Spirit of God, now guide our hands. O Spirit of God, now build your kingdom among us. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause the light of his face to shine upon you. May he turn his countenance towards you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen.